Hello, college football fans. Welcome to episode 169 of College Football Throwdown. I'm your co-host, Alex Schmitz, and today I'm joined, as always, by my dad, Peter Schmitz. Hello, Husker fans and college football fans. (laughs) Hello, everybody. Uh, We are back here to talk about the various college football bowl games and the semifinals of the playoff, as well as some big news in the world of Nebraska football in recruiting and a little bit of Nebraska volleyball to go with it, since that's where we left you on a cliffhanger from our previous podcast. Uh, So a lot to get to today. Absolutely. Like, like always, Alex, just like always, just like always. Yes. And for those who may be listening to us for the first time, this is a father son duo here to talk about college football by college football fans for college football fans. And we're going to kick this off as is our tradition with a cold beverage. Uh, I've got myself, my uh, Kona brewing longboard Island lager. All right. I really do like that beer. I, I should have had you bring one of those so I could have drank one. You know, you could have <laughs> put it plate. in your luggage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be drinking uh, now. We're back in Florida after having spent the wonderful Christmas back up in Michigan. And uh, I'm going to enjoy myself a, a, a yingling lager myself. So it's a fine, fine beer. Cheers to you, son. Cheers. So, yes, um, in terms of the Nebraska side of things, uh, when we last recorded, which was around uh, mid-December, um, there was a lot of uh, stuff still up in the air as we were getting closer to the signing day for recruiting. And there were rumors that uh, Dylan Riola, that we were getting some interest from him. Uh, we had previously pursued him as a potential quarterback recruit for us, but he committed to Georgia. But then more recently, we were hearing that he might be interested in Nebraska again. And there was also interest from Kyle McCord, the quarterback from Ohio State. And then Daniel Kalen, our, the current uh, freshman quarterback that we had, Sound like he might have been leaving because he was going to go visit Michigan State. And so there's all sorts of, you know, chaos going on. Um, and we didn't know exactly how it was all going to play out. And there was a possibility that we might kind of be, uh, you know, left uh, in a game of musical chairs, right? We'd be the one left standing with uh, nothing to show for it. Uh, but thankfully, exactly. in this case, it actually worked out all right for us. Uh, Kyle McCord uh, ended up. At Syracuse, Dylan Riola committed to us, so we got a five-star quarterback, uh, one of the top recruits in this class uh, on our team. And then Daniel Kalen decided to stay with Nebraska and did not go on that Michigan State visit. Um, Now, Jeff Sims and Chubba Purdy uh, both did transfer out of the program. Uh, so our quarterback room still isn't quite as deep as we would like, uh, but we've got a very promising talent uh, who could throw the ball now on the roster that has uh, a lot of fans excited for next year. Yes, and and the reality is, uh, you know, Daniel Kalen, the the other quarterback that was already part of our class, was also, as a reminder, an Elite Eleven quarterback. Okay, so so really, just the the, the combination of the two of those guys is a very attractive place to be for Nebraska for this incoming freshman class. The, the challenge, however, is how do you manage the depth besides that, right? Because we did lose uh, both Sims and Chubba Purdy uh, uh, to the portal. Now, as of right now, uh, 
Chuba is visiting like four different schools, I believe. Um, uh, San Jose State, I know, is one of them. And I, I feel like there's another one on the – oh, Cal is another one. So a couple of West Coast schools, which might be a really good fit for him from a family standpoint because his brother, of course, plays for the San Francisco 49ers. So uh, from a family perspective, um, I, I think that would be a real natural fit for him to – choose one of those locations so i won't shock me at all if that's one of those two schools is the one he ends up at and sims i've heard nothing about in terms of where he might be leaning what direction he might be going right (laughs) well it's kind of funny so you and i had a more limited uh time together for the holidays than usual uh because of my work schedule this year but we did get to watch a little bit of the NFL, which included watching Chubba's brother Brock Purdy in a game uh, where he threw like three or four picks and just played terrible. So I was like, oh, it was four. <laughs> that's that's where Chubba gets it from. <laughs> so well, uh, but now uh, as a side note, though, other than that game, uh, Brock Purdy has had a, a really good year and was just here the last day or two uh, named to the Pro Bowl. So, right. so he's a pro bowl. It was just funny. <laughs> yeah, it was. The irony was there for sure. Yes, definitely. Um, so, you know, we'll go more in depth on the whole recruiting story with Nebraska on a later podcast. You know, we've also had some players decide to stay, you know, for their senior year and then others decide to leave. Um, and we have some transfers visiting, of course, you know, since that, portal is still open right now, including, I know, a couple of wide receivers who are probably tempted by having that nice quarterback room that you mentioned. Uh, so on a later podcast, we'll go more in depth about how all that shakes out for Nebraska. But currently, uh, we're around 18th in the national recruiting rankings. Right. Well, depends on, you know, the various ranking services have us all over the place. But I, I would say we are solidly a top 25 class. And, and pretty darn close to a top 20 class, which, you know, for us, given our circumstance, uh, you know, our recent history in terms of win-loss record and everything, uh, I would have to give Coach Rule and his staff, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a at least an A- minus uh, um, for their recruiting uh, performance. You know, ideally, I'd, I would love for us to be consistently top 20 and regularly top 15 if we want to compete for championships. But we're, we're a few years away from getting into that echelon, assuming you know all things go in a positive direction for Nebraska. Very true. Um, and then the other big Nebraska story that we left off on in mid-December was, of course, Nebraska Volleyball. Uh, they just recently won the semifinal in the NCAA tournament against Pittsburgh and uh, had to play against Texas in the finals, which we felt better going up against Texas than Wisconsin, who has kind of been Nebraska's demon over the years. Um, and uh, I predicted that uh, we would win that finals game in 3-1 to one in terms of sets. You predicted it, we would win 3-2, to two, that would go to a fifth set, but we'd managed to pull it out. And uh, we watched it on the day of. You were actually there in person at the time, still in Florida, and unfortunately, it went Texas's way in a 3-0. Uh, the first set was close. It was 25-22. Um, but from there, Texas kind of took control. Uh, that serving game of theirs that we knew would be a problem that had really given Wisconsin troubles uh, gave us plenty of troubles, too. And we just 
weren't playing necessarily our best, not executing as well as we had just in the previous game against Pittsburgh. Uh, so fair play to Texas and their team. They came up with a unique strategy and kind of innovated in the middle of the tournament and played some of their best volleyball at the end of the year. And we weren't quite able to keep up with them with all of our freshman talent and everything. But I'm hoping that the girls use this as a learning opportunity and are able to come back even stronger next year. Yep, that that would be my hope as well. It was extremely disappointing. Uh, it, the team that played in that championship game did not um, um, look anything like the team that we had watched all all year. I brought uh, got so much joy out of watching this team, um, uh, even though we didn't win the championship, and and yet it was right there for us to se- secure. Um, and that's always uh, disappointing because you never know when you're going to get the opportunity to get back. It doesn't matter how young you are. Um, the bottom line is when you have that moment, you need to seize it, and we did not. And uh, a lot of that is credit to Texas. Yes, they they had developed some serving prowess, some um, really effective serving methods uh, late in their season and and then continued to progress in that path all the way through the tournament. I mean, there, if someone had told you at the beginning of the tournament that they were going to beat uh, Stanford, and then um, Wisconsin, and then Nebraska in consecutive games, everyone in the volleyball community would have probably said, no, that ain't going to happen. So great credit to them. Uh, They came up with a way that their serves were presenting massive problems for uh, all of those teams. Uh, And, of course, Nebraska is historically a very good receiving team, and we could not handle their serve, period. And um, so credit to them. Um, it was probably one of the most lopsided championship games that I can remember in volleyball in the years that I've watched it and not in a good way, obviously for Nebraska, but, uh, um, it is the way it is. Yep. It is what it is, you know, yeah, disappointing, but I recall you saying on the previous podcast that just making it to the finals in and of itself was a huge success for this team, along with the you know, stadium still out at the beginning of the season and all that, you know, even though it's very disappointing the way we lost and you would have liked to see us be more competitive, you know, you still have to see the season overall as a big success. We're definitely excited to see what the ladies can do next year and hopefully uh, bounce back from the tough loss against Texas in that national championship game. I think they will. I hope so. Um, But now we're going to dive into the college football side of things. We're going to start talking about the bowl games, kind of going from some of the lesser ones up to the big games later on. And one of the smaller ones I wanted to highlight was the Myrtle Beach Bowl, where my alma mater, Ohio University, was playing against Georgia Southern. Managed to win uh, pretty decisively 41-21, to ending their season at 10-3. and Wow, that's awesome. Double-digit victories. That's a... That's a, a, a really good season for Ohio U, and it's great to see them continue their su- success beyond Frank Solich uh, because they, they promoted from within and, and gave one of Frank's uh, assistants the head coaching job, and they've continued their success. Yes, that's always nice to see in today's day and age. Um, and then uh, this one was quite interesting in the uh, famous uh, Toastery Bowl. Uh, Western Kentucky played against Old Dominion, and managed to win an overtime, the first overtime, 38-35. to 35. Uh, It was a crazy game where Western Kentucky was actually down in the turnover margin 5-1. to one. 
but they managed to make a comeback from being down 28 to nothing early on. They blocked two of Old Dominion's field goals and uh, managed to win in one of the craziest bowl games of this season. Wow, that is something. Uh, I did not watch that one, so I don't have much perspective on that, but that just is, uh, uh, again, uh, an, an amazing accomplishment for a team that was minus five, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I also didn't watch it live, but I saw the highlights afterwards, and yeah, it was definitely a fun one. Uh, why you want to watch the bowl games, right, for scores like that? Exactly. Um, and then uh, Northwestern Utah, kind of a different sort of uh, score, you could say. Uh, Northwestern won 14-7 to over Utah in a, quite a low-scoring affair. Both offenses really struggled. Uh, I think Northwestern went up 7 to nothing at halftime, I want to say, was the score. And then uh, there was a little bit more scoring later on. But uh, impressive for Northwestern to hold off a talented Utah team and uh, manage to end their season on a W. Yeah, very impressive, I think, Northwestern. And, and of course, they, they have now since made the interim head coach, the head coach, um, you know, there at Northwestern, all the turmoil and stuff that they went through this year. That's just a really great way for them to finish the season. Yeah, I think I saw some commentary online from some Northwestern fans praising how he took this team that was in such a terrible state, you know, with all the controversy with the previous coach and everything and managed to make this a pretty solid season for them. Right. I mean, uh, certainly breaking expectations or exceeding, exceeding expectations. Well, and, you know, uh, Utah is going to be an interesting story, as I think, to next year as well, in that, uh, you know, they're joining the Big 12. And um, that's going to be interesting. That that could become a team that is a regular contender for the Big 12 Conference. Yeah. Yeah, well, and there's another team, I think, that fulfills that role that we'll talk about later. Uh, but for now, we'll talk about uh, USC versus Louisville in the Holiday Bowl. Um, that was one that we did uh, give a little prediction for. I, we both said that Louisville would win. We thought that they were the team that wanted to be there more than USC, and we knew that USC had some big opt-outs, including Caleb Williams, of course, their star quarterback. Um, but turns out uh, the backup's pretty darn good there, too. He threw for a lot of big passes, and uh, USC ended up winning that one 42-28. Yeah, that, that, was a, that was actually a very big win for uh usc because i think if they had if they had laid an egg there like they had in some other uh late season games that might not have boded well for the uh the general optimism uh you know moving forward with the usc program but i think so i think that was a a more important game than maybe people realize for usc yeah i think you might be right and then uh oklahoma state played against texas a&m in the texas bowl uh so of course it was Pretty much a home game for Texas A&M, uh, but Oklahoma State managed to win that one, thirty-one to twenty-three, in a nice back-and-forth game. I believe there are two turnovers on both sides, uh, nearly five hundred yards of offense for both teams. So, uh, very high-scoring uh, offensive affair. A typical traditional Big Twelve game, right? Uh, uh, but in this case, it was still A and M was SEC, but. But they used to be in the Big 12. I guess we'll give, give them that. Uh, interesting to see what will happen with those two teams going forward as Oklahoma State, of course, is another one of those teams that might be in the thick of, of this new Big 12. And A&M, of course, has fired their coach and is going to be going in a new direction as well. 
uh, and they're in a league that's going to, it's going to be a, a hard hill to climb for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely true. And, uh, you know, we'll see how the, the new guy there at Texas A&M does with those high expectations we know they have. Exactly. Um, and then this one was quite surprising to me in the pinstripe bowl. Uh, Rutgers went up against Miami and managed to win 31, 24. Now I know that, uh, Miami had significantly more opt outs and transfers than Rutgers did. Uh, but still impressive that they managed to beat a very talented team. And they had a running back, I know, who had a great day. Just one of those guys who always gets you a first down when it's, you know, third and five, that kind of thing. Yep. Well, and I, I just think that was a great win for Rutgers. Uh, kind of unexpected by me anyway. Uh, and I, I think probably bodes well for, again, the direction of uh, Greg Shiano's program there at, at Rutgers. And it also speaks to the, the head-scratching underutilization of talent that that continues at Miami. <laughs> yes, specifically, uh, Kyle Manungai is the name of the running back, and he had uh, 163 yards in that, uh, in that game. Wow, that's excellent. Yes. Um, and then this is the game I was referring to previously, the Alamo Bowl, which was Oklahoma versus Arizona. Uh, Arizona coming in ranked 14th while Oklahoma was ranked 12th. So quite considered to be quite close, uh, by the pollsters out there. Um, and Arizona managed to win that one 38, 24. And of course they will be in the big 12 as well next year. And they've had quite an impressive season. I want to say they were like one and 11, just like a season or two ago. So for them to turn that around to, uh, this kind of success and beating, uh, historically, you know, uh, blue blood, like Oklahoma, uh, you, they got to be feeling pretty good there, I would say. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be really interesting because without any established, you know, long, uh, long reigning dominant programs in the Big 12, uh, it is going to be a free for all as to who will emerge over the next four or five years as the dominant programs within that new, that new newly defined Big 12. Yeah. Now I'm curious, did you watch any of that game? You know, I watched a little bit of it, but I'm, I, I, I don't have much recollection of it. So it was one of those that was on in the background and I don't know that I paid all, all that much attention. I, I will say obviously that I was surprised. I thought, I thought Oklahoma was the more talented team, but, and, and would win. So yes. I, I'm surprised by the outcome, right. but Arizona played well. Yeah, well, I watched the highlights of that one, and actually, uh, looking at my sheet here, um, I predicted that Arizona would win, and you predicted that Oklahoma would win, so I went out on that particular prediction. Um, but uh, in terms of the turnover margin, what would you guess it was? Oh man, I, you're you're asking you're asking for me to have a memory. <laughs> well, no, just guess, just guess. I'm gonna say it was three. So three in favor of Arizona. Arizona, yeah. Uh, correct answer was five. It was six to one on turnovers. Wow. So Oklahoma <laughs> had six turnovers. Yes. And so they, wow. act, and they basically had 200 more yards than Oklahoma, than Arizona did. So that goes to show you how many drives they had going and then would throw a pick. And apparently Arizona has been very good at getting interceptions all season. So this is not just a fluky thing. Um, but Oklahoma did have their quarterback uh, transfer to Oregon. Uh, so this was the second team guy who was in. And it was kind of a back and forth affair where uh, Arizona went up early because of some of those picks. Then 
Oklahoma came back, made it 24 to 13, and then Arizona stormed back in the fourth quarter to win 38 to 24. Yep. Well, again, you know, Oklahoma's heading to the SEC and 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 this reconstituted Big 12 is going to have uh, lots of interesting storylines next year for sure. I would definitely agree. Um, another interesting one, uh, this one involving the Big Ten was the uh, Cotton Bowl, which was Missouri versus Ohio State. Uh, kind of similar to that uh, Utah Northwestern game we mentioned earlier, a low scoring affair where both offenses really struggled. Uh, but Missouri won that one 14 to 3. Ohio State's quarterback, as we mentioned earlier, uh, was Kyle McCord, who was interested in coming to Nebraska and ended up at Syracuse. So he was out for Ohio State. And then their second team quarterback got hurt in the third possession of the game. So Ohio State was playing with their third string quarterback. And obviously he did not uh, do that great, which is why they only got uh, three points the whole game. Right. Yeah. Missouri's a good football team. And, and Ohio State uh, needed to, uh, you know, play a good football game. I mean, when you think about it, uh, you know, Ohio State was an undefeated, you know, 11 and 0 team going into that final regular season game against Michigan. They ended up playing number one Michigan, you know, to a, basically a, a one score affair. Uh, so obviously very talented. But then you fast forward to a bowl game in which they're playing not their second string, but their third string quarterback. And, you know, their best wide receivers are out uh, because they've opted not to play in the bowl game and things like that. And all of a sudden that team doesn't look anything like the team that played all year. Right. Well, and so we actually gave a prediction on that one. We both said that Ohio state would win. I said 24 to 17. You said 28 to 17. However, at the time, uh, Marvin Harrison had said that, uh, he was, he was undecided on if he was going to play or not, but he was practicing with the team. So we assumed that he would play, uh, the fact that he sat out definitely hurt them, uh, especially with a third-string quarterback who's having trouble throwing it. If they had had him as a powerful running presence, I think that game might have looked different. Right, absolutely. Well, and also, uh, you know, I don't know if I would say this is a you know a failure or not. And they obviously know their team better than me, but but uh, uh, the Ohio State game plan did not include hardly any throwing of the football after their second teamer went out, right? Like they had no confidence in their third team quarterback until, uh, you know, well into the game. Yeah. Well, well, we've seen how that has gone for certain other teams. So I can understand their trepidation, but uh, better get them up to stuff soon. Yes. Yeah. Um, then the Gator bowl this year was uh Clemson versus Kentucky. And that ended up being one of the better bowl games uh, with Clemson winning 38 to 35. Uh, I actually predicted that uh, Clemson would win that one uh, while you predicted Kentucky. Uh, so that's another win for Alex in the, uh, in that particular <laughs> column as we're keeping score here. Um, yes. But yeah, that was a fun one. Kentucky was actually up uh, 21 to 16 in the fourth quarter, uh, but then ended up going uh, four and one on turnovers in the fourth quarter. So, uh, there was a total of five turnovers in that fourth quarter. So, which is why there was so much scoring and, uh, right. Kentucky kind of, yeah, kind of gave it away. Right. Exactly. It was a self-destruction. Um, but again, you know, I look at that one, 
a little bit like the USC game. That that was a more important game for Clemson than many might realize. Uh, I think had they lost that, uh, there might have even been more change uh, afoot at Clemson. Uh, not that I'm not saying they would be firing their head coach. That's not my point. But I, I suspect uh, there would be there would have been even a, another greater level of scrutiny on the coaches by uh, Dabo. Uh, he would have just been uh, more inclined to make change. Uh, but I think the fact that they were able to, you know, secure this win might make him feel a little bit more like, okay, I got to just keep grinding and we'll be okay. Right. Uh, well, and now here's one that uh, did not go my way, which was uh, the Sun Bowl, which was Oregon State versus Notre Dame, number 19 versus number 16 in the rankings. And I yes. I predicted that Oregon State would kind of uh, be one to play more and that, uh, you know, they would be more excited to be there versus Notre Dame. Uh, but uh, Notre Dame ended up winning that one very solidly, uh, 40 to 8. And you predicted that Notre Dame would win. So uh, that's a point in your book. Uh, the, uh, the upset didn't go my way. Yeah. Well, and I, if I remember correctly in our last podcast, we talked a little bit about this after we made the predictions. And my whole point was that, you know, Oregon state had lost their head coach, uh, and, and a number of other players who had opted out. So even though under normal circumstances, you would have expected an Oklahoma state, to, I mean, a Oregon state to be very excited to play in a bowl game. Now in this new age of, you know, everybody looking out for themselves, uh, you know, a coach leaves, then that, that, that often represents an opportunity for uh, players to jump into the portal and find an, a better situation rather than sticking around to find out what, what's going to happen with their new coach and their new situation. So that's what happened. Yeah, that's true. I did not quite account for that. Now, in my defense, I re- recall that Notre Dame's quarterback was not playing in that bowl game so i thought that you know the second teamer might not do so well but uh kind of similar to usc seems he's all right so uh they did just fine (laughs) yes exactly all right um and then uh this was uh one of the other interesting ones uh the peach bowl which was ole miss versus penn state 11 versus 10 and this one went the sec's way uh 38 to 25 uh i believe actually penn state scored kind of late so it was actually closer to uh 38 to 18 i guess that would be um yeah this one uh it, I, as i recall it was close in the first half it was a very competitive game but then in the second half Ole miss really took control and kind of dominated it from there yeah you know and i i just felt like uh yeah old miss was kind of in control most the most of the game um uh, Penn State just wasn't able to get over the hump and really get themselves uh, where they could slow down Old Miss enough to, to you know, get into it, right? So it was just one of those deals where, and again, um, Penn State, I think, had quite a number of players opting out. So did Old Miss, but Old Miss, Old Miss has a lot of positive momentum right now. They're going to be a, a team to contend with next year in the SEC. Yes. And I actually predicted that Penn State would win that one 28 to 17. Well, you predicted that Ole Miss would win in a high scoring 48 to 41. Uh, so while the score wasn't nearly what you thought it would be, it was an Ole Miss victory. So you get the nod on that one. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> um, and then uh, this one was very talked about, uh, of course, after it happened. Uh, as I was working uh, on, uh, I think it was New Year's Eve, the score was pulled up and everyone in the trailer was like, oh, wow, that's pretty crazy. That was, of course, the Orange Bowl with uh, Georgia versus Florida State. Uh, we knew that a lot of Florida State players had opted out already when we gave our previous predictions. So both of us were pretty confident that Georgia would win that one. I said they would win 32 to 17. You predicted a little bit higher of 35 to 14. Uh, but none of us were even close to the final score, which was a 63 to 3 drumming by Georgia, who, to their credit, a lot of their players did not opt out. Did did stay and play, you know, to try to send a message. Uh, so I give props to Kirby Smart for managing to accomplish that. Meanwhile, Florida State, who you would have hoped, you know, could have rallied after the disappointing uh, betrayal of being left out of the college football playoff, might have been trying to make a statement by winning the bowl game and saying, hey, we're undefeated, we're the real national champion. But instead, a lot of the players kind of seemed to give up. And uh, that was the result you saw on the field. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting because I'm curious if there will be a hangover, so to speak, for Florida State going in next season uh, from this loss. Because, you know, um, there's just not a lot of positive momentum and positive vibes that you can take out of a drubbing like that. And for that to be the last game that you get to experience before you go into the offseason, it's a little harder for you to, you know, really look optimistically ab- about the direction of the program. And I think some of the departures reflect that. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see. Now, Florida State recruited very, very well. Uh, don't get me wrong. So they, they're bringing in a lot of talent and they're going to be fine. But are they going to compete like they did last this last year? I don't know. You know, are they going to be ACC champions again? I would say right now I, I would not put them as a favorite. Right. Well, and I remember one of the players who opted out was their second team quarterback who was expected to play if they did make it into the playoffs. So I think they were stuck with that third team guy who we all saw in the ACC championship game was uh, not so great. And uh, that's that's who ended up playing. Yep. Uh, and, and, you know, Florida State will almost certainly, you know, secure a, um, a portal quarterback or two um, to go along with whatever they're bringing in in the in the recruiting class. So they'll, they'll shore up or be able to shore up that role just a little bit. And I don't remember about the, the, the quarterback who got hurt. I think he had a year left, so he'll be back as well. The starter. Right. And I just, you know, with all this opt out stuff, you know, and I obviously I understand why it's becoming more of a thing between the, you know, focus on me and you're thinking about the NFL draft. If you're an older player or not increasing an injury, you know, because there obviously are a lot of players who play with some sort of ding or injury, you know, and play through it because they want to play for their team and get them to the, you know, playoffs or whatever. So I understand if you're sitting out for those sorts of reasons, but how do you look your brothers in the face after a drumming like that on national television and be able to live with yourself, right? And not feel guilty for letting them get embarrassed like that because you chose not to play. That's what I want to know. You know, uh, I, I just think the perspective has changed uh, in this day and age, you know, and in, in the past, absolutely. People would have felt like, you know, they were being abandoned 
and that it was a it was the wrong decision to make. But now it, it seems like uh, everybody's kind of focused on their own, uh, you know, best interest, right? What am I doing to improve my NIL situation and things of that nature? And and it's accepted. It's not that they're viewed as being selfish or not team players. They're now being viewed as doing what they are supposed to do. And and, I, and as a result, I don't think there's much guilt and uh, how they view that when they watch their teammates, you know, get beat up because they left the team. Yeah. Yeah. And as I mentioned, I can, I can see it for certain people, especially like if you're carrying an injury or whatever, but uh, if you're not, if you don't have that excuse, then yeah, I don't, I know I would feel bad at least. Well, and I think they should. Yeah. And, and this is an example of the deterioration of what used to be a fabulous uh, sport and, and, and the, the, the real essence of athleticism, especially amateur athleticism, which is being lost through this whole process, uh, and where team is, is first, right? And, you know, working towards something that's bigger than yourself. You know, these are concepts that uh, don't get easily learned. And that's why there's a lot of disappointment and frustration that often, you know, comes with building yourself up to that point. And the fact that these kids are no longer going to get the benefit of that amazing lesson uh, is frankly going to be detrimental, not only to the sport, but to what they can gain from the sport uh, in terms of the rest of their life. Right. It really is that basic. Yep. Yep. But you know, if they secure, uh, you know, that NFL deal or whatever, they guarantee that, then they probably view that as being worth it. Um, You know, thinking in the more in the short term kind of way. Well, and, and, and the reality is, is, you know, it, it, uh, this is another study among the many studies that we've talked about need to be done, uh, you know, in the future years and looking back at the, this period of NIL as we have it right now, how many players are getting paid really substantial NIL dollars that don't even end up making an NFL roster roster. I mean, right. we're, somebody's going to look look back at that and say, you know, this school or this conference paid X million dollars to X number of athletes who ultimately weren't even NFL caliber players, and yet they paid them this enormous sum of money. And that's great for all those individual players who are going to reap the benefit of that. But many of them, you know, may or may not use that money wisely or leverage it to maybe put them you know, project them into the rest of their lives in a positive fashion. Uh, so I don't know. There's just, there's an awful lot that, uh, is gonna, is unlearned at this point. <laughs> there you go. Um, so moving on to some other, uh, bowl games. Um, this was one that surprised me. Uh, Maryland went against up against Auburn in the music city bowl and Maryland beat them 31 to 13. Now, obviously this was kind of a down year for Auburn. You know, they didn't have a very good record, but they did come within one play of beating Alabama who made it to the semifinals. Right. So, you know, they've got talent. Oh, uh, Oh, you mean the gift from God? Yes. You, you, you have taken to calling it that, haven't you? <laughs> I have. Yes. That's what it is. It should be referred to that every time when we're talking about <laughs> Alabama and, and or Auburn. Yes. But Maryland is actually a team that Nebraska beat earlier this year. So the fact that they uh, managed to beat Auburn uh, is pretty impressive. Right. Exactly. And that's the thing is that, you know, I, I, I mean, Maryland uh, is one of those teams that had 
a lot of talent this year and probably in the eyes of many people, maybe uh, under underachieved a little bit relative to what people thought of them going into the season. So you knew they had talent. Um, but the fact that they were able to hold it together, you know, be motivated and focused for uh, one of these lesser bowl games really speaks to uh, uh, that they uh, are in a pretty good place where Auburn, I think, is still struggling to find an identity in an SEC that's top heavy with teams that are flat out better than them. And they're scratching their heads to figure out how they're going to compete. Yes. Uh, and then these two bowl games uh, kind of went the way we expected, uh, though maybe not to this extent. Uh, you had Tennessee versus Iowa in the Citrus Bowl, and then Oregon versus Liberty in the Fiesta Bowl. Uh, Liberty being the undefeated team from the group of five who kind of made it into that upper echelon of bowls. Uh, but Oregon crushed them uh, 45 to 6, and Tennessee uh, destroyed Iowa 35 to nothing with that vaunted Iowa offense of theirs. Yeah, well, and you know, the the question is, um, how does uh, how did Tennessee achieve that when so many other teams tried to and couldn't against Iowa? And and I think a big part of it is, you know, the discipline that Iowa showed through the regular season didn't extend into the bowl game. I mean, they they made some mistakes and basically uh, shot themselves in the foot in ways they never do right? It's like, that's the MO. And yet they, right. they, they that faltered in this well, I'm game. I'm pretty sure they didn't have their starting quarterback, right? The quarterback who played was a different guy. Yes. Well, and, and I guess you could say it was the third guy, right? Cause the first guy got hurt and was lost for the season right away. The transfer from Michigan. And then the guy that actually played most of the games. Yeah. I think he wasn't available. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that one was a, a tough one to watch. And then Oregon Liberty, uh, we both said that Oregon was going to win. I predicted 38 to 28, and you predicted a little higher scoring, 42 to 17. But of course, 45 to 6 is even more lopsided than that. So uh, kind of a bit of a preview, I think, of what we might see in the era of the 12-team playoff coming up, where we'll have two group of five champions uh, amongst that kind of first round of playoff games. But it kind of feels like if you're seated five or six, right, and get to play one of those, then you're kind of hoping for that because you think that you've got a pretty good shot of uh, winning just with your better talent. Right. Well, you know, and I, and I'm just going to say this out loud. I, I I don't know that anybody would, would not want to be in the top four where they get that bye week, you know, but the idea that um, you get to have uh, a playoff game, an official playoff game, at your home stadium, right, um, would be a big deal, right? And uh, so the people who find themselves in positions five and six, really, uh, you know, they're going to be playing the the best alternative opponent that you could think, right, the, the, the 11th and 12th, and you're going to get a play at home. Um, so being five and six has its advantages. You, you, you get the season, you know, you're, sometimes you're in a rhythm. Uh, a week off isn't necessarily what you want, right? And and especially after you've already gone through the conference championships and all that sort of stuff, and maybe you didn't play in the conference championship because if you're five and six, you might be the one that was the third, the one that didn't make it into the playoff, uh, to the conference championship. So I can just see some scenarios where those 
those spots, five and six, are going to be very interesting. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And then uh, this was one of the more interesting games of the uh, bowl season, which was the uh, Relia Quest Bowl, which was LSU versus Wisconsin. LSU was ranked 13th, while Wisconsin wasn't ranked at all. However, LSU is without their Heisman-winning quarterback, Jaden Daniels, right, um, and some of their other uh, players. Um, and the Wisconsin played them close. Uh, LSU won that one 35-31, and uh, we both predicted that uh, – LSU would win that one uh, on our previous podcast. Uh, But frankly, if I was a Wisconsin fan, I'd be frustrated uh, because they were either in the lead or tied with LSU until there were three minutes left to go in the fourth quarter. So LSU only took the lead at that point. And Wisconsin went up 14 to nothing pretty early on, uh, but they had a blocked field goal and then also had to settle for a field goal after getting first and goal at the LSU one, and they weren't able to convert that into a touchdown. So you got to be looking back on those missing points with regret. Absolutely. I I 100% agree. I think this is a, that's a, that's a victory that Wisconsin should have been able to get. And I'm sure they're very frustrated that they weren't able to finish the deal there. Although, you know, like you said, uh, objectively, uh, going into the game, I still expected LSU to win the football game, but Wisconsin played quite well, and LSU didn't. Uh, again, uh, broken record here about, boy, quarterback play is important. <laughs> yes, you certainly are right about that. So now it's time to get into uh, the real discussion here, which is, of course, the college football playoff semifinals. And we can start off with the first game of the day, which was Alabama versus Michigan in the Rose Bowl. Um, we gave our predictions for that one uh, previously, and I said that uh, Michigan would win uh, 31 to 24. Well, you predicted that Alabama would win with the reverse score of 31 to 24. Uh, and the final score ended up being uh, 27 to 20, Michigan winning in overtime. Uh, so we were pretty close that it was like a one score game. Um, and was it going to be super high scoring? Um, but the way the game itself actually played out was quite interesting. I was mostly listening to the game on the radio, um, mostly in like the second quarter onwards. Um, and, uh, later on in the game in like the third quarter into the fourth, early fourth quarter, it really felt like Alabama was taking control. Uh, but Props to Michigan. You know, I remember listening to the Alabama uh, sports announcer. It was the Alabama, you know, radio station. And mm-hmm. uh, and they were saying, oh, Michigan's probably going to, you know, start throwing the ball, you know, opening up the offense right to, uh, to try to score quick here because they're running out of time. But they didn't really. They kept to their ground game. And uh, it started to work again for them in the fourth quarter, you know, because they'd been consistent at it the whole game. And it started to get. Uh, Alabama tired, I think, and they had an impressive drive down where they scored a touchdown to tie the ball game and then uh, managed to kind of outcoach Nick Saban in overtime and kind of steal one out from under his nose. Right. Uh, Well, that's the thing. Uh, This was a tale of two different games for me, Alex. I did watch it pretty much, well, every play. I watched every play. And, uh, um, you know, in the first half, I mean, in many respects, uh, Michigan was dominating. Uh, I mean, I think, well, Michigan had five sacks on the um, Alabama quarterback in the first half. And uh, um, 
I mean, and they put pressure on him constantly and they were, they were slamming uh, their running game, just completely shutting it down for the most part. And if, if not for one or two plays, I think Alabama might've had like 35 or 40 yards of offense in the entire first half, except for a couple of big plays. So, but, but the bottom line was even with all that apparent dominance on the part of Michigan, uh, they th- were sitting there at 13 to 10 with a three point lead. Why? Because their kicking game completely collapsed. Yeah. I mean, Michigan just throughout the game, they're, they're number one, uh, at, at the, at the most obvious level is they had two muffed punts, one that ended up translating into, uh, a turnover that, that led to some of, uh, uh, Alabama's points. And the other uh, didn't lead to directly to a fumble to a change of possession because the guy muffed it and then he was able to get back on it on the one yard line that put Michigan back so deep in their own territory that they they you know was very difficult to dig out of that and then to combine that with the fact that their punter never really got going in this game and uh, the Alabama punter was doing a way better job and so the 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 flip of the field during the punt exchanges were constantly going in favor of Alabama and Alabama was able to keep Michigan, you know, backed up almost the entire game. And, and, and I haven't even mentioned the fact that they botched an extra point and they botched a field goal. Right. (laughs) Right. So, so, I mean, that, that tells you the litany, uh, the litany of problems that they had in the special teams area. Yeah, no, that, that was definitely true. And Alabama, uh, by contrast, made like a 52-yard field goal at one point in the game. And like you say, their punter was doing great by comparison. Uh, I'm sure yep. your buddy uh, Brian Clower, who's been on the podcast before, he must have had a heart attack when that guy muffed the punt right at the one-yard line. It was nearly a safety, which was right. at the point when it was a tie game in the fourth quarter. <laughs> so that would have been a disaster. It's just amazing, right, that yeah. that, that could happen. But, but so then you've flip the thing to the next half, right? To the second half. And in that third quarter, Alabama came out and dominated. All of a sudden, the defensive pressure and uh, the ability to stop Alabama's running game, it went away. Alabama was being dominant. And it sure looked like Alabama was just going to take control of this game and do what they've done countless times and just line up and smash Michigan. And there was nothing Michigan was going to be able to do about it. But interestingly, they didn't. And there's a, from some other specific reasons for that, but you have some comments as well. So I'll let you, and then I might come right. back around to that. Well, talk about Alabama's mistakes. Cause both teams kind of had some jitters. I think in this game uh, for them, they right. had a, a critical fumble late in the game that gave Michigan yep. good field position. Uh, although I don't know that Michigan had any points off of it actually. Um, and then uh, their center was terrible. He was snapping it low or, you yes. know, just going all over the place with the, with the snap. And, uh, and that was causing some big problems for them. You know, I think it uh, messed up one of their situations where they were near the goal line and then it were pushed further back, you know, or out of field goal range or something along those lines because of a, a bad snap. So uh, Alabama had their own set of problems and their quarterback, uh, Milrow, uh, who has you know, generally improved, of course, over the course of the season, uh, he threw it 23 times, but only for 116 yards. They actually had 172 yards rushing the ball, so they had more success running it. 
Uh, yes. But I saw somebody making the point of like, you know, the ESPN folks criticizing FSU for their bad quarterback play. And it's like, oh, well, Alabama's so great. You know, look at them, 116 yards. Whoa. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, and that don't open up that can of worms. We don't, we don't want to have another three hour podcast. But the bottom line is, uh, you are you are right on, and and they did struggle, and and you're right, and they struggled at the most inopportune times, like uh, in the third quarter, one of those bad snaps occurred when you know uh, they had taken momentum in the game, they were they had the ball, they were driving, I think they had already gotten one, maybe two first downs, they were in uh, at midfield or even in the Michigan territory, and, and things were looking up like this was going to be a drive that was going to produce some points, and then. Boom, ball gets snapped poorly and it gets past the quarterback and it ends up being like a, I don't know, 18 yard loss or something. Takes them completely out of, you know, scoring range, field goal, whatever. And then they're just not able to, you know, recover from that. And they end up having to punt the ball to Michigan. Now, they, that, that because their punter was doing so well, they kept Michigan deep, but it was, it was another oppor- uh, opportunity lost for, for Alabama during a period of time when uh, Michigan didn't have an answer, right? And then sometime there in the fourth quarter, Michigan was able to find a way to slow the bleeding and, and eventually, again, had some success getting pressure on their quarterback and keeping them. You know, and, and I would blame something I want to point out about this particular game is I think both coordinators, offensive coordinators for both Michigan and Alabama did not stay with what worked in, in both cases. You know, Michigan. You said they stayed dedicated to the run, and and the and the and the uh, sports announcers for Alabama were thinking Michigan was going to start throwing the ball all over the field. Frankly, they had tried to do that earlier in the game. It really frustrated the heck out of me. And I think it was the early in the third quarter, and and Michigan had an offensive series where they basically threw it three times after having had great success running the football in the first half. It just didn't make any sense. And uh, and then uh, and then the same would go for Alabama, where they were having great success running the football. Man, some of the holes they were opening up were massive, right? So it's like, okay, these guys have figured out, you know, the stunts that Michigan's doing, uh, and they're literally just pushing those guys around. And then they would throw these stupid, you know, um, screen passes that that Milrow couldn't even throw very well. And so the guy would end up having to catch it a back shoulder or something on a screen. And then a Michigan guy would be there to basically pound on him right at the line of scrimmage or for a one yard loss. And, and so some of his completions that you were just talking about were, were for these stupid, no yards, one yard gains on these screen passes that did not work. Right. Well, yeah. So in total, the Michigan had six sacks and nine tackles for loss. They were getting the backfield a lot. Uh, and then they, threw it 27 times for 221 yards and ran it 32 times for 130 yards. So they did actually have more success passing it than running it. Uh, But I noticed that that running game came in clutch for them near the end of the game. And then in overtime, right, Michigan gets the ball and they just practically walked into the end zone. It felt like there was very little resistance. They just ran a couple simple plays, got in there, scored real quick. And then Alabama uh, got to like the five yard line, uh, but kind of got stopped by Michigan. And then we got into the, one of those situations where the coaches were calling time, using their timeouts, seeing what the formation of the offense or the defense was, call a timeout, change the play, you know, on a critical fourth down. 
Um, so that was kind of a coaching battle you saw going on between Harbaugh's guys and Saban's guys. And it kind of worked out. And sure enough, on that last play, the center kind of gave a low snap to Milrow. And I think it was just a straight like quarterback run. And he got nowhere. And that was it. That was game over. So I was certainly yep. happy to see that. Right. Uh, me, me too. I, I mean, um, I sure didn't want Alabama to advance. And, and um, you know, I, but I was I was very concerned that it wasn't going to come to pass as that third quarter was unfolding, but, but to Michigan's credit, they found a way and, uh, you know, kind of refound their footing, if you will, uh, defensively, uh, against Alabama. And I think Alabama, again, kind of helped them with that, with their play calling. Um, but, but at the end of the day, uh, Michigan found a way to be a few points better. And that's why they get a play for the national championship. (laughs) Very true. And then the other semifinal was, of course, Washington versus Texas in the Sugar Bowl. I predicted that Washington would win uh, 42-35. Well, you predicted a higher scoring win for Washington of 52-48. And the final score ended up being uh, 37-31 with Washington winning, so a little closer to my score spread. Um, But we were both correct on Washington's W there. That one was quite interesting in that it was certainly more high scoring than the... uh, the Alabama-Michigan game, but there were more penalties on both sides. You know, I think there were a total of five penalties combined in that Alabama-Michigan game, whereas for the Texas-Washington game, it was 15, right? So uh, significantly more of that. Uh, Texas had two tur- two turnovers while Washington had one. Um, but uh, it was quite the special game for Michael Penix, uh, Washington's quarterback. Uh, it just felt like he was throwing these dimes over and over again, you know, throwing deep balls and they would land right in the laps of his receivers. Um, and frankly, I was surprised that Washington wasn't going up by more because they had to settle for quite a few field goals in the game. Um, right. Uh, three field goals, actually. Um, so I, frankly, I felt like Washington should have been further out ahead with how uh, well he seemed to be playing, uh, but they really couldn't get a rushing game going. That was their problem. Right. Exactly. And, um, but, but for most of the game and, and I will admit it, it got to where it was pretty darn late Eastern time, uh, in the latter stages of that game. So I was a little fading in and out trying to stay awake. Uh, and, and, and for a lot of it, it seemed like, uh, Washington was in a fairly comfortable lead, right? They were, they were up, you know, 10, 13 points, something like that, 14, but it was, uh, and then all of a sudden late in the game, there was kind of a series or sequence of events. Uh, one of uh, Washington's running back uh, got hurt and some things happened that, that uh, led to a Texas touchdown. And then all of a sudden things were tight again, you know what I mean? And so, um, uh, but it seemed like Washington was in control and was pretty clearly the better team. Most of the game uh, to me. Right. Well, so actually, uh, it did end. The first half ended at 21-21 tie. It was kind of going back and forth, but Washington yep. kind of let Texas get a, a pretty quick touchdown there with like one minute 27 left to go in the half, and Texas went down there and scored. Um, but then in the third quarter, uh, Washington went up by 10, uh, so it was 21-31 right. to 31 at that point. And then they scored again in the fourth quarter. So it was 34-21, right? But once again, they were scoring field goals, not touchdowns. So it wasn't uh, 
you know, unbeatable or uncomebackable, I should say. <laughs> uncomebackable. Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. And Texas nearly did come back. Uh, they had a right. chance there at the end. You know, they were going on a they drive did. after scoring their own field goal. But Texas, you know, kind of shot themselves in the foot, right? They had two turnovers. They had 10 penalties. Um, so they kind of gave up some of their own situations. They they sure did. And, you know, um, and, and and the 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 bottom line is, you know, um, they were having success against Washington's defense, right? Like they they were moving the football, they were doing lots of good things, but then they would uh, either have p- bad timing on a penalty, or they would they had some turnovers that took away p- possessions, and all that you know led to them basically fighting uphill the whole game. Right. Well, yeah, Texas had five hundred. Of, sorry, 498 total yards, while Washington had 532. But both teams struggled on third downs. Uh, Texas was 4 of 11, and Washington was 3 of 11. Um, so both of them kind of struggling to convert in that short yardage uh, situation. Um, but time of possession-wise, Texas only had the ball for about 24 minutes, while Washington had it for 36. Um, so that goes to show you, you know, when Texas scored, they were often able to score quick. Um, right. While Washington would kind of go on these longer drives and sometimes have to sell for field goals and things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I was happy with the result, you know, cause a Texas Alabama matchup would have been two teams I disliked. Um, and so I was hoping for Michigan versus Washington and that's what we got. And I'm personally rooting for Washington to win the national title, mostly because, you know, Michigan kind of has the stain of the science stealing thing. On them this year, so I'd like to see Washington win. Not to mention to have the Pac-12 win in the last year of the Pac-12 would be kind of poetic in a way. Um, so that's kind of how I'm feeling going into this national championship game. Even though Michigan is a 4.5 favorite according to the odds makers. Right, right. Well, I, I would I would share your sentiments also, Alex, with regard to the matchup between Washington and and uh, Michigan. Um, and uh, I, you know the the I think the scenarios are kind of clear. Uh, I think uh, if Washington's going to win this championship game, uh, they need to do kind of what they did to Texas, which is they need to get out in the lead, right? And they've got to operate this game from out in front. And uh, um, if they can do that, they can keep uh, themselves uh, unpredictable and uh, and and do some good things. Um, you know, to, to keep Michigan from, from just locking in and, and, and shutting them down. If on the other hand, Michigan is able to establish their running game and then, uh, and is able to keep, uh, Washington from scoring and getting out into the lead. Uh, uh, if, so if Michigan gets a lead, I could see it becoming very, very difficult for, uh, Washington. Cause right. I think, I think at the offensive line, Michigan probably has an advantage over Washington's defensive line. Uh, Washington has, you know, they won the award for the best offensive line or whatever, uh, the Moore Award. Um, I didn't realize that, but but they did. Um, but Michigan's defense is pretty good. Now, if there's a weakness in Michigan's defense, I've learned that that is kind of a little bit the secondary. So, uh, you know, with Michael Pennett's throwing in that, in that number one, the receiver for them, who, who just catches everything, you know, those guys have a chance to really go off and have a big day. So, yeah. you know, uh, the, the question, and this was a debate between Brian and myself, 
just just earlier today, in fact, is uh, the what what we think should be the defensive uh, game plan for Michigan. He felt like Michigan needed to kind of play Iowa like and try to uh, you know make make uh, Washington drive it down the field, um, you know, in the hopes that they can squeeze them and keep them out of the end zone and force them into some field goals and consume some clock, right? Shorten the game. And that that would lead to success uh, for, you know, for, for Michigan ultimately, and that they would win a close game at the end. Uh, I'm more inclined to say, boy, I think I would, I would take an approach where I want to be a little aggressive. I want to make sure that, that, uh, that Penix is uncomfortable and that defensively I'm, I'm making him move around and not letting him just settle in and throw the ball around, you know, and um, uh, because I, I'm not sure I want to trust this secondary weakness that Michigan might have. I don't want to, you know, have to put them on the burden of, you know, monitoring these receivers for a long period of time. Right. I want to get to that quarterback. Right. So I would probably be a little bit more aggressive than what Brian is proposing. We'll, we'll have it'd be interesting to see what the philosophy is that, that Michigan ends up bringing to the table. But I really do think that Michigan has an advantage to run the football against West or uh, Washington's defense, and so that'll be the other thing I'm really watching: is has Washington been able to lock in and find a way, however they might choose to do it, to basically anticipate and stop Michigan's running game? And if they can do that, then things are going to get real tough for Michigan. But if they can't, I think Michigan's going to grind them. Okay. Yeah. My, my reading would be that I think regardless of what you do, Penix is going to get at least one of those really, you know, nice deep balls to one of his receivers for a touchdown. So I think, you know, I, I think I kind of lean your way in that. I don't think playing the, the Iowa kind of more conservative, uh, way is going to pay off because you know, Washington has that explosive power and it's going to show up at least once or twice. Um, and so you have to score enough, you know, to, to compete with that. Um, right. And my thought as well was that uh, compared to this Alabama team where we're like, we said, Milrow was really struggling it with passing it only through for 116 yards. Now you're going up against a quarterback who just threw for 400 right in his, in this last game. Um, yep. So I, I have a feeling that uh, Michigan will have to respect that. And that will kind of open up the field for other plays for Washington. Um, yep. So I'm inclined to think that Washington will win this, even though uh, Michigan is the favorite, according to the bookies. And I saw someone making a point that uh, Penix was actually at Indiana uh, back in like 2020, yep. played against Michigan in a similar sort of point spread scenario and beat him. Um, now, obviously, I remember the game. totally different teams that we're talking about right now. But um, you think that must give him a bit of confidence. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, but now, and we also have a, you know, condition issue here where the, that running back for Washington who got hurt, uh, you know, it sounds like they're, you know, he's going to, he's going to play or he's going to try to play or whatever. Uh, but the question is how, how healthy is he really going to be? And is there the possibility that maybe there's another running back, even though it didn't show in the, in the Texas game, is there somebody else in that running back room that can maybe emerge as the, uh, unsung hero up till now that becomes the big hero of this game for Washington, because I think Washington is going to have to establish a running game and be balanced to some degree, more so than they were even against Texas. 
if they hope to beat Michigan. Because if they don't establish that running game and, and Texas, or I mean, uh, Michigan can, you know, basically anchor that down, then I think being one-dimensional against Michigan's defense and with that physical offense that Michigan carries with it, I, I think uh, that does, that's not a good formula for Washington. I, 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 like I said, I think my inclination is to want Washington to win the game, but I'm going to predict a Michigan victory. Uh, and I just have this, I just have this feeling that it's going to be um, n- not like last year's at all, but, but it's going to be a solid victory for Michigan. It's going to be a 10 or 14 point victory for Michigan. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to establish their running game against Washington and they're going to shorten the game considerably. So it's not going to be a super big high scoring game. Um, if it is, that probably lends itself to Washington winning. Um, but so I think it's going to be kind of lower scoring. I might, I might go with like, um, you know, I say low scoring, but then I'm going to say, I'm going to say it's going to go, uh, let's go 28 to 17. 20 to 17. Okay. Uh, well, I'm going to go the other way, which will make this, uh, interesting for our, uh, little competition here of predictions. I'm going to say yes. Washington wins uh, 31-24. I think it'll be a close game, um, but I think Washington will, like you say, might get out early. You know, kind of keep that seven-point lead uh, consistently mm-hmm. throughout the uh, throughout the game and uh, put the pressure on Michigan to uh, come back. Now Alabama did the same thing, and Michigan stepped up to the plate in the fourth quarter, right, and had that nice drive to tie the game up. Um, so we'll see if they're able to if that sort of similar scenario repeats itself because uh, Washington's defense did show some vulnerabilities, certainly against Texas. Um, but yeah, I think it should be a good game. You know, it's number one versus number two in the rankings and they're both undefeated. So in a lot of ways, this is a great game. It's the first time the SEC is not in the championship game in a number of years now. Um so I think for a lot of pe- fans of college football, this is a refreshing game that has a lot of people excited. Um, and obviously, I want Washington to win, but if Michigan wins, I won't be you know uh, too upset either. You know, I think uh, either one I can accept. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, it it will be uh, uh, the NCAA will will uh, uh, avoid a a bigger catastrophe, if you will, of from a PR standpoint. Because if Michigan wins this thing, and then later on when they finally get around to doing their job on this uh, sign-stealing thing, and they conclude, based on all the evidence they were able to collect, that this definitely happened, and that this was going on for the entire season of 2023, and likely uh, 2022 as well, and maybe even a a little bit before that, that they're going to be forced to vacate that championship. And some of those victories, because I mean, at the end of the day, if it gets confirmed that that cheating was going on and it was digital cheating and it was on campuses and things like that, that's, that's a big deal. And, and if they do anything less than, you know, severe punishment of Michigan, it'll be just another joke among the many jokes of the NCAA and might be their final, final nail in the coffin of the NCAA. Right. Well, that was reminding me the, the guy who was the assistant on uh, Michigan staff, who was kind of accused of being the one going to the games to, you know, take photos from both sides of the field and that kind of thing. He was spotted at the Rose Bowl, and there was news stories about oh, that. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. 
Oh, wow. Stallions you're talking about. Yep, yep. Oh, my gosh. I did not hear that. Hopefully, they keep him away from the championship game. Um, right. But uh, Wow. And then in terms of our predictions, uh, we're actually quite neck and neck here. I predicted eight correct, while you predicted seven. Uh, so I'm in the lead by one, but we went opposite ways on the championship. So if you're right, then we end up tying. And if I win, I win by two. So that's that's the stakes <laughs> here. <laughs> going I into, love it. Okay. Going to next week. Okay. Well, you know, the thing is, is again, uh, uh, I mean, both of the games uh, on a more global conversation, maybe to finish things off, you know, both games were good. They were competitive. They were mm-hmm. entertaining. It was, uh, you know, the crowds were fabulous in those playoff games. And so, you know, this all indicates that, you know, maybe next year with 12 playoff games and, and you know, all these additional teams having a stake in it, uh, you know, the crowds will be better. The interest level will be up and, uh, you know, it might lead to some really great stuff. So, so maybe, maybe, uh, if we can get to that and then figure out this NIL, you know, portal crap so that that gets resolved. It's crazy. Oh, one more final comment. You, you know, you were uh, earlier in this podcast, you were talking about the, uh, Alabama center having a, a rough night. Uh, he's in the portal. <laughs> well, well i even heard like the the nose guard on michigan side was even telling him like are you okay man you know <laughs> like it was that bad um which is crazy right that i mean on the one hand how is michigan right having punting that's so bad you know and punt re- receiving and then on the other right. hand how is alabama you know with all their talent not have a guy who can snap the ball and also block right because that 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 was my guess is that he's good at the blocking but has issues with the snapping and they didn't have a, a guy who could do both behind him. And, and there is one more thing I must mention because as a Nebraska fan, uh, you know, I think our listeners who are Nebraska fans would be furious with me if I didn't at least reference this. Keep in mind that in that um, Sugar Bowl, Washington against uh, Texas, at the end of the game, Texas got a second put back on the clock. <laughs> at the end of the game again texas got one second put on the clock now frankly this review it was quite it, it was uh, quite appropriate that they did put the one second on it probably was the correct call but the idea or, uh, of seeing all those texas fans clamoring for one second to get put back on the clock and and then having it put back on the clock gave you a flashback ir- irritated the living daylights out of me man it was awful. <laughs> All right. Well, here's my last thing because I was thinking this. What uh, I wasn't able to watch the Washington game live, but I saw it afterwards. Watching Penix, you know, have this amazing night. I'm thinking that with the advent of the 12 team playoff next year, and you know, adding four more games, you know, in the postseason, right, for the teams that are in the first round and don't get that buy. I think we have to move the date of the Heisman Trophy. It can't just be after the end of the regular season because you still have the best teams playing three, four more games, and maybe somebody really has an outstanding night and emerges or adds to their resume in a way another guy doesn't. I think that tradition is going to have to change uh, to keep it fair moving forward. Wow, that's a good point. I hadn't even thought about that, but that's a very good point. Uh, yeah, well, and here's the other thing. Uh, with that long of a playoff sequence, injuries are going to be huge. 
in these all these teams that are selected to be you know members of the playoff, right? And you know, think about the injury to the quarterback that was such a big deal in picking the fourth team this year. Frankly, injuries are part of the game. It is what it is, but we're going to see that play out probably more than once in these next few years. Definitely. All right. Well, it's been fun doing this podcast. We'll be coming to you next week with another one. Uh, Hopefully, we'll be talking about a Washington W, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, And I'll be in my throne as the prediction king for uh, 2023. Um, (laughs) Yes. And then uh, later on, we'll also come with a more detailed breakdown of the Nebraska football recruiting situation, you know, how things pan out with all of our transfer portal guys and uh, what we can look forward to in the spring game for Nebraska football. Exactly. Exactly. Lots of go big red uh, coming up for sure. (laughs) That's right. So if you out there enjoyed listening to this podcast, you could email us at huskerpeat13 at gmail.com. You can also find us if you search for College Football Throwdown on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can leave us a rating or review there. We always love hearing from the fans. So thank you out there for listening, and thank you, Dad, for joining me for this episode. Until next time, go Big Red. Go Big Red. Go Big Red.